chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14, and we'll read verses 25 through 32. The Gospel of Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 32. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not, uh, wh whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who, who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build that was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. God richly blessed both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, in this text, it contains what theologians have categorized as one of the difficult sayings or hard sayings of Jesus. And certainly that is the case when you consider verse 26, where Jesus says that in order to be one of his disciples, one must first hate father and mother and spouse and brothers and sisters and even himself before they are able to follow him. So you can see why that would present a difficulty. And since what is contained here is one of Jesus' hard sayings, what I want to do is begin with what this verse does not mean. What verse 26 does not mean. And by doing so, we should be able to put the two illustrations that Jesus uses in this section to put them into proper perspective. So let's begin with what Jesus does not mean in verse 26. And so what Jesus does not mean is that in order to be his disciple, one must first literally hate father and mother, children, brothers and sisters, and even oneself. Now, one of the reasons we know this is not what Jesus literally means is because the essence of the second table of the law is to love our neighbor as ourselves. And furthermore, the fifth commandment in the Mosaic law requires us to honor our father and our mother. And as the Apostle Paul points out in Ephesians 6, the fifth commandment 
is the first commandment with promise. Now that being the case, surely one does not become a disciple of Jesus by breaking the law of God. In addition to uh, the Sermon on the Mount and uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. So since we know that Jesus would never require his disciples to violate the law of God in order to be his disciple, and since we know that Jesus himself says that he has not come to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law, then we certainly know that Jesus is not instructing us to break God's law in order to become his disciples. Because if that were the case, that would make our law keeper who Jesus is, it would make him our law breaker. And we know that Jesus pronounces woes on those who cause others to sin. So when he says in verse 26, that in order to be one of his disciples, one must hate father and mother and spouse and brothers and sisters and even themselves, he cannot mean that it, what is required to enter into the kingdom of God is to do the exact opposite of what the law requires. Now, one of the ways that uh, some have tried to qualify and handle this this hard saying of Jesus is to say that what he means by these words is that our love and our devotion to him ought to be so much or ought to be as such that our love for parents and spouse and children looks like hatred by comparison. So that's the way, and, and I don't know how many of you would have, he have heard this, but I know I've heard a number of, of well-intended preachers and Bible teachers to say that we are to love God to such a degree that our love for our neighbors or love for our brothers and sisters and our parents looks like hatred by comparison. So that may sound good on the surface, and if you run real fast, you pass by it, it might, it might make it. But when you really look into the content of scripture, there are a number of problems and a number of inconsistencies with that. I won't deal with all of them, but primarily, here's, here's the main thing. Here, here's the, the main push against such reasoning. What we discover in the scriptures is that genuine love for God Genuine love for Christ manifests itself in a greater display of love towards our brothers. When Jesus 
in Matthew or in John's gospel says that here's the new commandment that I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you and Jesus love for the father does not make his love for us look like hatred Jesus love for the father causes himself or causes him to demonstrate the Father's love towards us. So that what we experience from Jesus who loves the Father is a greater manifestation of love from him. So in the same manner, genuine love for Christ manifests itself in a greater display of love in our horizontal relationships. Apostle John argues in this very same way in, first, in his first epistle in making the case that it is inconsistent at best and inconceivable at worst to declare love for God whom we have not seen and demonstrate hatred for our brothers and sisters whom we see every day. So if Jesus is not saying that the cost of discipleship is the actual hatred of parents and spouse and siblings. And if he is not saying that the cost of discipleship consists in loving him to such a degree that our love for others looks like hatred by comparison, then what is he saying? I think that what he's saying what Jesus is actually doing here is he's doing the same thing here that he does with the Sermon on the Mount and the same thing that he does with the rich young ruler which is to raise the demands of God's law to such a degree that it is outside of the reach of human ability. In other words, Jesus is not saying that we are to love, we, in order to love him, we have to hate something that God tells, hate someone that God tells us to love. Nor is he saying that love for him will, look, will make our love for others look like hatred. He's not saying either one of those things. What Jesus is doing here is something that he's done in other places, which is to put God's law and the actual demands of it outside of the reach of human abilities. Paul in Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 20 gives us a good insight into what Jesus is actually doing in this discourse. In that portion of scripture, Paul says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I think what Jesus is saying here, what he's saying is that in order to be a disciple of his, you must see the love that you are most proud of. 
your greatest display of love, you must see that love that you would hold out as being proof of how much you, you really love the people that are closest to you and look at it in the light, the full light of God's law and see that your best efforts of love are deficient and therefore come short of what God has required in his law. I know we do live in a fallen world and as such, we are quick to point out that our human relationships, our horizontal relationships are never what they ought to be. We would acknowledge that. Even in our, in our best efforts, we as parents, we, we look back as we have raised our children and we say, I love my child, but what, where I am now in my understanding of things, I wish I had done something different, that I would have displayed more love to show them how much I love them. And even with our spouse, I've been married for 40 years and I'm, I, I pray that the Lord would allow me 40 more so I can grow not only in my grasp and understanding of love, but grow in my demonstration of it. Because I can say that I love my wife and I think my wife knows that I love her. But my love for my wife as it has been practiced is far short of the love that God has, recalled, has called us to. We just recently passed Mother's Day and we've got Father's Day on the horizon. The Lord has called both of my parents home, and I would I tell any I tell anyone today that I love my parents. In fact, it's interesting that people that I talk to and really have just come to know in the last 10, 15 years who never knew my parents, they hear me so often speak of my parents. One brother was just saying the other day, boy, I bet your parents were really a joy to be around because I love my parents. But if I had to stand before God on the day of judgment, offer up the love that I have demonstrated towards my parents against the love that he has required for the parents in his holy law, then rather than being having something to boast about, actually, I would come up as I would be, I would be exposed as one who has hated, hated my parents, hate my spouse, hate my child. Not that I, I have any disaffection towards them. But the reality is, I am not able in and of myself to demonstrate the love that God has required in either one of those relationships. So instead of loving parents to the degree that I actually, that the law actually requires, I've actually exposed, I am exposed by the law as being a hater. And I think this is borne out in the examples that Jesus gives. Sometimes we get lost in the language of count the cost and, and we read that as meaning Jesus is saying, count the cost of what it means to be my disciple because unless you're willing to, to demonstrate that, almost we look at it almost like a gang rit uh, ritual or initiation where in order to prove you want to be with this gang, then you have to go out and, uh, and commit a criminal act because that's the cost for being on Jesus' team. 
No, that's not what he's doing. Look at the examples that he gives. In these examples, he gives one of a man who decides to, to build a tower. And then he says that this person who goes out to build this tower, did you really consider the cost of it? Did you really consider, did you consider that you had enough when you laid the foundation and you've already made the provisions? Have you really considered the cost of it so that at the end of it, you realize maybe, oh, I ran out of material. So that everyone who knew what you were trying to do will look at you and say, he didn't even factor in all of the cost that's involved in building this particular tower. Or he says, take a man who, a, a king who's about to go to war and he knows he's going up against 20,000 troops and he only has 10, but yet he goes to battle anyways. And he says, then you look at it and you figure, oh, I don't have enough, so I must negotiate terms of peace. I think what Jesus is saying in these illustrations, again, we get lost in the details of, of building a tower, Really, the building of the tower, as well as going to meet another king in battle. He's likening that to going before God on the day of judgment, willing and thinking that you're willing and thinking that you are ready to offer up your obedience to God's law as having met the standard. And what you'll do when you discover what God really calls for in his law. And you come standing in your own righteousness. You are like the man who thought he had enough to build a tower. And doesn't even have enough to finish the foundation. When you come before God on the basis, or when you think you are, you want to come before God on the basis of having kept everything and meeting all of the merits of love that, have, that God has required, and you want to stand covered in your own works and righteousness, it's like a person who thought he was ready to go to war. Then when you really see the troops that you're up against, you think, well, maybe... I need to negotiate for peace. What are the terms for peace? You see, brothers and sisters, the terms for peace, and this is the point that Jesus is making in this hard saying. The points are that the, 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 the negotiation for peace is the cross, and that's what he gives us in this, in this passage. Because he says not only are we to recognize that our love that God has required of us is deficient, but he also wants us to recognize that we are ourselves unable. And because we are unable, what he offers is the cross. And that's why he says everyone must first pick up his own cross and follow me. Now I'm going to say this, that it's probably on this end of redemptive history, because we know the end of the story. It's a little easier for us to know that what he's alluding to is he's not saying that we have to suffer like him. He's not using the cross in a metaphoric way. He's not saying that the burden, the, the, the cross that you have to bear is to go back and disassociate yourself 
from family members. That's not the cross. On this end of redemptive history, we know what Paul says in Romans 6, that we have, we, if we have been baptized into him, then we have shared in the likeness of his death and his crucifixion. We, we understand on this end of redemptive history, according to Paul in Colossians, that we have died with him. And so what he's doing is not inviting us to pick up a metaphoric cross. But Jesus is actually referring to his cross. And the reason we have an advantage on this end of redemptive history is because we know what that means. Our faith in Jesus connects us to his cross. Now, those that he's addressing, even if they don't fully know what they mean, what he means by the cross, what they should know, if they truly have an understanding of God's law as illuminated by the Holy Spirit, they should be like the tax collector. Jesus tells the story of two men who go into a temple to pray. One of them, who was a Pharisee, is proud of himself, and he boasts really before the Lord, saying, Lord, I have done all that you've required, and I thank you that I'm not like other men, and I'm not like that tax collector over there. The tax collector probably a Jew because he's in the temple and he's praying to God. But he recognizes that through the law he has been laid bare. And so rather than even lifting up his eyes, he merely lifts his voice and says, Lord, have mercy upon me for I am a sinner. What Jesus is doing here in offering the cross, offering the cross to those who have understood that their righteousness is not enough in the day of judgment. And so the renunciation that he is referring to renouncing ourselves, the only way we announce ourselves is to look to the mercy of God as it is offered in the cross of Christ. Because it is through that renunciation that we receive, we are able to receive the mercy of God. Because by clinging to Christ, what we are saying is, Lord, I tried to build a tower of righteousness. But now I see that my, I, I, I don't have enough. I, I've tried to, to be ready to meet you in the day of judgment. And what I see is I'm not clean enough. And so the only ones that look to Jesus are those who now see that the only means of peace in the day of judgment, because for us, as we cling to Christ by faith, he is our judgment. And so his cross is our confession that we're not enough without him. But his cross is also our reminder that by faith in him, the love that God has required has actually been met. And so I would argue this way, that the disciples of Jesus are those who renounce themselves and they cling to his cross for both salvation and sanctification. We cling to his cross for salvation because we know that by embracing him by faith, 
We have borne, he has borne God's wrath in our place so that the judgment that should have come upon us has come upon him. We also embrace him. And so when we do so, when we embrace him by faith to that regard, what we are doing is offering up all of our righteousness as nothing but guilt. It's what Paul says in Philippians. I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own, which is according to the law, because if you judge me by the law, as we read in the Psalms, who would be able to stand? But rather, he says, I would I stand before him covered in nothing but the righteousness of Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is the perfect obedience that is required by the law. In salvation. We become the disciples of Jesus by dying to self in recognizing that Jesus has died in our place and that his righteousness is now credited to us. And so Paul's rationale in Romans 6 is that those who have shared in the likeness of his death also share in the power of his resurrection for this reason, so that we could walk in the newness of life. The way Paul expresses this, because I argue again, as I said a moment ago, that when Jesus is offering his cross, he is not just saying that we are now, we, we renounce self for salvation, and then you're on your own for sanctification. No, the same cross by which our righteousness has been exposed as being deficient is the same one that we turn to in our daily struggle with sin. In Ephesians, or uh, Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 6, Paul puts it this way in verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So in our daily walk, because we have been united to the death of Christ and his righteousness has been credited to us because we have renounced self and no one becomes a disciple of Jesus without renouncing self. No one, no one becomes a true follower of Jesus, a child of the most high God without saying, I am unworthy, I am unclean, I have failed to be what you've called me to be and I'm unable to do it. It is then that our hands are open that we would freely receive the righteousness that God has given to us in Christ. And likewise, as that defines our salvation, that's the same dynamic that is at work that defines our sanctification. That's Paul's rationale, as I've cited so many times from Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been, if you, if you're, if you have shared in the likeness of his resurrection, then he says, then set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated. And then he then goes on to say, and now put to death. In other words, our sanctification consists of us denying the desires and the inefficient and recognizing the inefficiencies of our own affections and actions and 
putting them to death in the same cross in which we have shared in the crucifixion of Christ. So in other words, what Jesus died for, we are continuously to die to. Now that takes us back then to what Jesus says in verse 26. And the dynamics that he sets forth here. Not only is it true at the point of salvation that we are to recognize the deficiencies of our love in our most cherished horizontal relationships. But Jesus is also calling for his disciples to see all of their interactions. Now that they are covered by his righteousness, let us see us as God saw him so that we can put to death that which is offensive to him. No one who genuinely loves mother or father wants to be told that you really hate them. In the same way, no one that truly loves God wants to be told that your best deeds are nothing. But that's what the cross tells us. That you're unworthy in and of yourself and unable in and of yourself to be what God has called you to be. So that which you boast in, confess it for what it is. Last week we looked at Paul's words in Ephesians about Christians uh, reflecting the love that they have received from, uh, from Christ so that they are to forgive one another even as we have been forgiven by God in Christ. And in the same manner, look at some of our interpersonal relationships in our homes and in our churches where we are entrenched in our good intentions and we never are willing to own up to the fact of our failures. But even as, as the Lord ex exposes through the prophet Isaiah, that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Jesus is saying about his disciples, both in salvation and in sanctification, we recognize a deficiency that we're perhaps better at than we were before, but if it were to stand on its own merit, it is far short of what God has required of us. If anyone is to be a disciple of Jesus, they are to renounce themselves and of all of their merits. I was reading an article about uh, from Psychology Today about uh, apology, that a genuine apology is not one that includes, well, if I. It doesn't include, it, 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 all it does, what a genuine apology does is acknowledge failure. It acknowledges an offense that came from us. Brothers and sisters, what Jesus, if Jesus wants us to see our, our affection as being hatred, don't you think he also wants us to see any other things that have emanated from us that are inconsistent with what they ought to be, he wants us to not just confess that we have, Lord, forgive me because I told a white lie today. He wants us to come before him 
and acknowledge that I lied. We won't want to just say, Lord, I, I had a lustful thought. He wants us to come in, in, our, in our time before him and confess that I have I've, I've, I've fornicated. I've, I've, I'm an adulterer. He wants us to acknowledge that what the law says we are, we are when we do not cling to what God has given us in Christ and not just cling to it. But even as we cling to it so that we don't make excuses for that which is deficient in us, his disciples are those who cling to him, covered by his righteousness, so that it exposes not just our failures in our worst moments, but that it exposes that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's why Paul's words in Galatians matter here. It's through the cross of Christ. I am crucified to the world so that the world standards are not the thing that, that, that motivates me and drives my behavior. And the world is crucified to me. If anyone wants to be a disciple of Jesus, let him renounce himself. Let him renounce himself as being unworthy, unfit, and unclean. And you know why? Because such is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is not prepared for good people made better. Heaven is a prepared place for undeserving, unworthy people who recognize that they are unworthy. And it is that recognition of their unworthiness and the reception of God's grace that connects us to the person and work of Christ so that even when we are unworthy, we are covered by the one who is. Self-renunciation is to say that nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to his cross I cling, and by his cross I am what God has required me to be. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you again in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word and the reminder of our issues with remaining sin. And not just the sins of word, thought, and deed, but also the sin of not, of not seeing it as being sin. We pray that through your law and through the illumination of your spirit, that we, as the Apostle Paul has declared, would discover the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And in seeing it, we would therefore have a deeper appreciation for the abundance of your grace as it is in Jesus. Let us not stand on our own merit, but let us stand boldly in the merit of another and walk in that light. Thank you for your grace in Christ, and it's in his name that we pray.
Now we need 